break the stigma. This is your host, Natalie Bolin. I'm with the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, Mental Health Services Board of Tuscarawas and Carroll County, the Adams Board. everyone, this is Natalie Bolin, the director of the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, Mental Health Services Board, the Adams Board. And this is our second guest in our series of Break the Stigma podcasts. And one of the primary reasons that we're doing this podcast is the break to break the stigma related to mental health and addiction um, across the country, but most specifically in Tuscarawas County. And today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Polly. And Polly is one of our Adams Board of Director members. And Polly, how long have you been on the board? 24 years. 24 years. Now, she's had to take a break here and there um, yeah. because, of, you know, because... A few our, illnesses. A few illnesses and because yeah. it's required, but you are about to begin your second term as, as an Adams board member. Right. And Polly serves a very specific role on our board, and that role is the role of um, a mental health consumer. And that means somebody who has had some type of behavioral health or mental health treatment in our system. And that's the biggest reason why we asked Polly here today, in addition to her sparkling personality <laughs> and her ability to match our outfit. Oh, that's right, <laughs> <I know>. match. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Polly, can you talk a little bit about what got you interested in the Adams Board, why you see it as something important? The Adams Board is very important to me because I have a chance as a consumer to guard what I think is possible for us to achieve with consumers, mm-hmm. people like me, and uh, the board is very important because the level of, of good that is in Tuscarawas County affects every single patient mm-hmm. that this board sees. And you are very much an advocate for our mental health consumers in our, our community. I want to break stigma. Mm-hmm. That's my main goal. And you do that. You do that. And that's, uh, I think, your willingness to tell your story. And I know you say, this isn't the first time I've told my story. Um, but it's such an amazing story and an interesting story. And looking at how you came out on the other side and what your recovery looks like, I think, is so inspirational as well. So um, can we dive in? We can dive in. All right, let's dive in. So, Polly, can you talk a little bit about maybe when you first started to see any type of mental health symptoms? Well, to be perfectly honest, major symptoms, not little things, but major symptoms came with the birth of my son. Mm -hmm. And I really became nonverbal and just not reacting to anybody. Um, So that came after the birth of my son, and I had to be hospitalized Mm -hmm. for that. And I was so fortunate to be hospitalized at OSU at Upham Hall. And I got the chief of psychiatric services at that hospital. And that means I got the best. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage anybody who has any disease of any type to um, Get the best possible help you can for your disease because it will mean your quality of life later on. 
And Polly, when you started talking about this just now, you said I was nonverbal and I didn't talk to anyone or I didn't interact with anyone. Right. Can you say a little bit more about what that looked like in your day-to-day life? What does that mean for well, people? Well, I didn't talk to people. I cried mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and just... Uh, well, if I cur- could have curled up into a fetal position, I would have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just really um, sad. Did they talk about postpartum depression at that time? No, they didn't. Do you think that's what it was, looking back? I, I tell you, I thought it had something to do with hormones. Yeah, I did think that. Thought it had something to do with my hormones, but um, they didn't, at that time, 53 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, there weren't any treatments. Mm -hmm. There were shock, which I had, uh, which was very successful, but there weren't medications, and um, the treatment was uh, talking only, Mm -hmm. and so... I had to learn that my mind was broken and I better listen to the doctors and do as they say. Well, and I think that's, I don't think, I know that's incredibly insightful when you can realize that my mind was broken. Yeah. What do you think makes it hard for people to... Um, admit that there's a part that's broken. Maybe it's your mind, maybe it's your heart, maybe it's your your feelings, your, your anger management, but what, what do you think makes it so hard for people to admit there's a part that's broken? I think there's still stigma. There's still shame and blame. Um, they blame the person. They blame the family. They just sh- put blame all around, and that's not the way to go. Mm-hmm. This is a disease. This is a disease just as if you had a heart attack or cancer or if you broke your arm. You, if you break your arm, you admit that you've broken it. You put it in a sling, and then you have to do physical therapy afterwards. So um, it's the same thing with a broken mind. You put your mind in a sling, which is the doctor. You trust his mind and not yours because yours is way off in nowhere doing the wrong kind of thinking. So you put your mind in a sling mm-hmm. with him and then you do therapy, which is the same thing you do after you come out of a sling with with a broken arm. You do physical therapy to get it better and healthier. And that's the same thing you do with uh, with a mental illness. I don't like to call it a mental illness anymore. It's just a broken mind. Mm-hmm. And if you view it in that way, it's much less fearful. Um, and I think it's much more helpful to do that than to say, oh, I have a mental illness. Because it, that backs people off from you saying, oh, I have a broken mind, they might ask, what's that mean? Mm -hmm. So taking the stigma out of um, 
how you view this illness is very, very important. The other thing that my doctor taught me was that there is no place for self-pity. And I'm going to tell a story about showing up at his office one day after I'd been dismissed from the hospital, and I said, Dr. Lorman, why did I have to have this illness? He pointed his finger at me and said, why not, Polly? What makes you think you will be, uh, not have to deal with world's problems? Stopped me dead in my tracks. And I never, I have felt self-pity since, but I recognize it right away. So the training that I got from this psychiatrist was fantastic. His mind was so good, he walked me through getting well. And I can't emphasize any more how important it is to have the commitment on my part mm-hmm. to listen to him, to do what he says, and to work very hard at trying to change how I was viewing things. Polly, when you started talking about, um, about that experience, you, you were talking about the stigma and shame. A couple years ago, I broke my foot and I was on crutches. Yes. You, you know that, right? I'm you were around. <laughs> um, and people would ask me how I broke my foot. And it was embarrassing, but I didn't necessarily feel shame. And I wasn't um, guilty about it. Yes. So when you talk about the shame and the, and the guilt and the embarrassment, talk about what that's like for somebody who's struggling with any part of their mind, body, or soul that's broken? What, what does that feel like, and how do you see that in people? What does it look like? Well, it makes you feel like a bad person. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel, um, well, that's part of the disease anyway, but um, shame just feels, well, like, I don't even know how to describe it, to be honest with you. It is a very defeating um, feeling, shame, shame who is who you are as a person, shame is what you've done, Um, guilty for the things that have gone wrong, guilty and angry at uh, the people who have caused that to happen. Shame. Shame is is not very good for you, and I think shame and blame are the backbones of mental illness. So that's one thing that a psychiatrist and you have to agree on, that you're not going to indulge in that. Indulge. Interesting choice of words. What makes you say indulge? Because I have to make that commitment. I have to make that commitment to get well. I have to realize that these doctors want the best for me and want me to stand up and walk again. And um, so accepting their direction, their thinking, uh, and making an effort to change how I thought because my thinking was so... uh, discrepant, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but um, it just wasn't healthy. Um, 
when I was sick, I had heard voices, and um, they were very derogatory, and I had hallucinations, and hallucinations aren't much fun either. Then I had, of course, manic and, and depressive uh, episodes, and let me explain to you what a manic episode is like. A manic episode is like you take your best day, Natalie, and you feel good about yourself, you feel good about what you're doing and where you're going. You multiply that by 100%, and that is what the manic person feels. It's almost like feeling like you're God, you can do anything. And it's a dangerous phase because it's so out of control. The other is the depressive episode. And the depressive, Natalie, is your worst day that you've ever had. You multiply that by 100%, and that's what the person experiences. It's like sliding down a deep, dark well, and there's slime all over that well. There's no handholds to get out, and you feel hopeless, helpless, and suicidal. It's a very dangerous part of the disease. And they have to be right on top of that with you when you're going through the suffering that this disease entails. And that's what it was like for you. Yes, that's what it was like for me. So when you're down in the bottom of that well and the slime is on the walls and you can't get out, even if you wanted to climb out, I'm guessing your energy was pretty low, your right. motivation's pretty low. How did you get out? I had to have this ray of light, which ended up being a person at the top of the well. It always has been people who have helped me climb out of that well. And I am very grateful for their presence in my life. The doctors, the counselors, the therapists, the hospitals. I had wonderful hospitalizations at a time 53 years ago when there were private hospitals. And they made it their business to put you back together. These hospitals were OSU at Upham Hall and Harding Hospital in Columbus, uh, both very good hospitals. And they taught me a lot about myself. They taught me about who I was as a person and not what I had been brought up to believe. Um, they gave me singing lessons. They taught me ceramics, they taught me writing, um, they taught me to do so many things, so many skills that I use today, how to handle my anger, that was a big one, how to handle your anger, and I always advise anybody who's having an anger problem, well, find your local telephone book and tear it up, that'll get rid of your anger. I've heard you say that before. Yeah. Not because I was angry. Not because. Just because you were sharing the story with me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Polly, you had on a word a few minutes ago. Um, you, you said indulged. Indulge in that feeling. And I think that what, what's so significant for me about that is that that lets us know that thoughts are a choice. Our choice. They're not something that we're powerless over, but when we have a thought, we can choose to indulge in it, or what's the other option? Say no to Say it. Say no to it. 
I don't think that that is something that is inherently understood about our thoughts. I think a lot of times people feel victims to the, a victim to their thoughts. I think that's because uh, in some cases they're not given enough support to realize which way the thinking should go. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't have maybe the right input from the right people or telling them things that they shouldn't be doing or going. And so people, again, can be a hazard um, to getting well. You have to be very careful who you share your thoughts with. They are private and confidential. And they're with people who want to help you, not hurt you. And the idea of having that team around you that wants to help you. I know you've said repeatedly how significant that was for you and how that was a game changer for you. But when I hear you talk about it, you were an active part of that. You weren't laying still and being passive and they were doing all the work. That's no, not what oh happened. No. What happened? So talk about that a little bit. Well, let's take, for instance, um, I had therapy learning to write. They wanted me to learn to put my feelings on paper. And I liked that course very much. And I did that. We had to write poems. We had to write articles for the newspaper. We had to put our feelings on paper. And I did that even when I left the hospital. I've written a book. Uh, And I hope that, I think for me, Putting my words on paper is what helped me deal with the emotions because right away you can see where your thinking is faulty or whether it's helpful. So I probably write every night before I go to bed, keep a journal of what the day proposed, what I learned and what I didn't. And um, I learned today that I could put a... um, a chocolate chip cookie in the microwave that was kind of dry and put water on it and put it in for six minutes and it's a good chocolate chip cookie. Six minutes? Yeah. Six, not six minutes. Oh. Six seconds. Sorry. Sorry. It's crispy cookie. <laughs> crispy and dark cookie. <laughs> yeah. So it has to be a willingness to learn something new. Well, and, and I know... We've talked a lot about the things that the, the skills that you learned or the talents that you found. And I know you've mentioned you're doing cards now yes. and the writing and the singing. And there was something else, the pottery. Pottery. Why was that important to you? Why were those hobbies and things important to you? Because I didn't realize beforehand that I was creative. I didn't realize I had any of these skills. Mm-hmm. And to have them presented to me and then enjoy doing them mm-hmm. was part of my healing. Um, I mean, when I was singing, I got a singing teacher that made me sing the Messiah. I mean, they were serious about what they did. Mm-hmm. They were serious about what they did. And they were into helping me be better as a person. And I just can't say too much about that. The pottery, learning to work with my hands to create something 
out of a piece of clay that was beautiful. That let me know that maybe I could create something beautiful in me. So when these classes were going on, not only was it a good interruption for any kind of a negative thought that might keep in, that creep in because your mind was busy, it was busy creating, but then you also found things that you enjoyed and that you were good at, which also increases self-esteem and self-worth and yeah, so I did that. Yeah, very clearly makes sense. Um, not, I mean, it, and it's wonderful that you had that experience in a hospital environment, but it doesn't have to be in no, a hospital environment. It can environment. be in your own hometown. Mm-hmm. Exploring who you are as a person can be an adventure. Mm-hmm. And Polly, when when is the, how, how do I want to ask this? When is the last time, oh, I know when the last time was, you told me about something maybe a year ago, something new that you were trying. Do you remember what that was? You were playing. Oh, ukulele yes. play. <laughs> I was going to ask, when's the last time that you tried something new? But a year ago, you got a music teacher and started playing the ukulele, ukulele. which right. I just think is so important because no matter what your age is, you always can go find something, something. new to fill your cup and 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 find an outlet and and build self-esteem. So I answered my own question there, Polly. (laughs) I think the other thing that's important though, is there was a singing teacher, a singing, um, singing teacher. Yes. And there was a a pottery teacher. Yes. But if you didn't do the work, you wouldn't have learned anything. I wouldn't have learned anything. If I'd been resistive, Mm -hmm. if I'd been combative, I wouldn't have learned anything. So can you talk about taking that to a doctor's office or a a psychiatrist's office or a counselor's office? The idea of them handing tools or resources or suggestions to somebody. And what's that person's role then? That person's role is to do as the counselor said. To try to practice what they said. A lot of times... Um, your thinking is way off base, so you have to practice when you get home from that counseling section, changing your thinking when those particular uh, emotions come up. You have to work at this. This is a daily process. This is not it's something I still have to do every day. I have to watch my thoughts. I have to take them captive and do something about it. That was one of the things that was always so hard for me when I was a counselor is when people would say counseling doesn't work. Oh. Well, I mean, it, it's the counselor's job to build that relationship and that connection and help build that trust. And, and most counselors are very good at that. But there's that back and forth and that relationship that the client has to, the counsel, the, the consumer has to bring to the table too because you saw, my client saw me for an hour and then every other hour of the week was theirs. That's right. And you, you know, have to practice. Yeah. That, that's really where the rubber met the road is, is when, whether and when they took that with them and then they did some of the work outside of the session. And I'm not, I, the only reason I'm saying this is because it takes work to heal. But why, man, whenever somebody is not feeling well, that takes work too. Yeah, that takes work. So Polly, I guess just a few more questions um, and and maybe we'll move toward wrapping up, but can you talk about anyone out there who might be watching or listening who 
is dealing with stigma, who is dealing with embarrassment and shame, and that's making them hesitant to reach out, what would you say to that person? Well, this is kind of a roundabout way, but what I would say to that person is something that's very important to me, which is, do you believe you're loved? I believe in the unconditional love of God, and that is a cornerstone to my thinking. Now, I don't bring that up at first. I don't bring it up, but I do try to steer people to at least considering the fact that God loves them very much and that they have a place on earth and a duty to perform. And I tell them, take this seriously, do, do the work, and have a quality of life that you can really um, have a firm foundation on. You can have a quality of life that's good and fun and something to look forward to rather than the darkness of mental illness of a broken mind. Broken mind. What about the family members who love the person who may have a broken mind or the community who may not be familiar with a broken mind and who are intimidated or, or um, fearful? What would you say to those outside of the person with a broken mind? What does that person need? I think that person needs to realize that they're not at fault, that this is a disease, just like heart attack or cancer or diabetes. It's a disease, and they should not take any shame upon themselves for this because I think that interferes with dealing with their loved one. They need to be as kind to themselves as they can. Families have a terrible time dealing with this illness because it's so destructive. And I have a lot of heart for families. My family was wonderful, but I sure got um, some comeuppance sometimes. But um, the things that really friends and family and cultivate those kind of relationships, cultivate relationships that you love people and that you're kind to them, even when you're families. I know you see a, a patient that is doing odd things, not, um, not uh, demeaning that patient, but un- trying to understand what's going on. I had an aunt who I went and talked to after I got out of the hospital. I know she didn't understand a word I was saying, but she listened to me. She listened to me and she gave me love. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what you need, and that's what families need between each other. They need to show each other love and caring and kindness and to themselves and to others. I mean, the greatest commandment in the world is love yourself and love God. It's the greatest commandment in the world, but you have to learn to love yourself. It's a very important duty. 
Is there anything that you haven't shared so far that we haven't touched on that you want to share? Well, I have a little uh, plaque on my refrigerator that says, Friends multiply joy and divide grief. Families do that. Friends do that. And I just can't emphasize any more how much the love I have in my life for my brother and my cousins, the love that they have and stood behind me meant to my getting well. And I encourage every family and every person to love themselves. I love themselves enough to get help. I love themselves enough to share it with their family and not have their family spit back in their face. So that's that's it, guys. It's a good place to end. <laughs> Thank you very much, Polly, You're for welcome. doing this and telling your story and your experience. Um, I, I always love hearing your take on recovery and how um, you went through some of the darkest times I think any of us could imagine. And here you are sitting, telling your story of survival and cheering on others. So I'm, I'm just so incredibly, incredibly impressed by you. Well, I'm very honored that you asked me. Thanks, Polly. Thank you, everyone. Hopefully we'll see you next time on the next episode of Break the Stigma. With every star. Thanks for joining us. Tune in for the next episode. 